out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the late 70s, very early 80s band, The Cigarettes, because I recently spoke to Stephen Taylor, bass player from the band, to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, this is the interview, and so, yes, oh yeah, just to give you a bit of a heads up, Optic Nerve Records in Preston has uh, just brought out on white vinyl a collection of the cigarettes work which is titled You Were So Young which does um, feature I expect all their work and much much more and I do believe fantastic artwork as we talk about in the interview so uh, for all those fans out there do check out Optic Nerve Recordings and the cigarettes latest uh, releases anyway um, after several minutes of casual chat with Stephen we got down to that very interesting subject that was the early formative years and this was Stephen's response. Stephen, take it away. I think David Bowie was big. T-Rex. I think T-Rex was just before David Bowie. It was. Yeah. Um, and that was the first big one. It was the same period. It was like that glam rock period, you know. Yeah. Well, it was interesting because Bowie had done lots of stuff in the 60s, which obviously I went back and listened to, which was you know, pretty dreadful in a good way. And then, you know, he did Space Oddity, that first album, which wasn't that great. And then he slowly got, you know, Nick Ronson and Tony Visconti and uh, uh, Tony DeFries and all that main man stuff. But, you know, in that early 70s, it was really the, the competition was between T-Rex and Slade, you know, and it wasn't until... Yeah, I think they, they had hits before. I mean, Bowie had the Space Oddity in 69, but then his first, his first hit was um, Starman. Yeah, I think that was the one. Dancing. One of them, I remember, um, the Starman, where um, I remember seeing him on top of the pop. I'd heard the record, and I imagined that he just was like in denims with long hair with the center part in, you know. And then I saw him on top of the pops, and he just wasn't anything like that. He was just, you know, and that was like the, the big one, wasn't it, when he was on top of the pops doing Starman and uh, and then you went to school the next day and just go my god did you see that you know <laughs> and, yes. then, um, and he was just fantastic from then on and re- he really was the uh, you know even like T-Rex I mean his albums were great as well I never really liked T-Rex albums but um, he just was fantastic everything he did was fantastic you know yeah it was quite lucky you know because finding somebody that you you know your first love you know you're kind of going to be with them all your life so thank god it wasn't Gary Gary Glitter because Bowie was quite I didn't well I did appreciate it as I was getting older thinking god he's quite good because you know he just brought out so much material and a lot of it you know was kind of hard going but it was there you know there's always this next thing that he was putting together whether it was kind of his you know, I missed, I suppose, late 70s, I wasn't so well, but the 80s are definitely, and then a bit of Tim Machine, then his drum and bass stuff, and then he sort of went back to, you know, reality and music, or what he was kind of good at, really, but, you know, he did so much in between, and then he obviously did Black Star, which was quite a kind of unbelievable piece of work, you know. When yeah, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, Tin Machine was a bit out there, but um, he was always trying new things, that's the thing, and they can't always be hits, can they? Yeah, and I think, you know, when I, I remember when he was working with Brian Eno in the late 70s, it was like, let's just do something. It doesn't matter, no one's going to die. And I suppose that was that attitude. I mean, I mean, everyone goes on that loads their favourite album, but at the time, you know, side two must have freaked people out. I always remember Charles Sean Murray with his kind of famous rant about this is the worst thing ever, basically. We don't need this record and thinking, kind of blew his career in Charles Sean Murray, isn't it? Kind of it's like, well. people, I was writing the zone for that record, so that record came out in '77, didn't it? So I was 18, you know. And the thing is that Kraftwerk had been around, so you were sort of used to it. You'd heard stuff like that, so it wasn't anything like so shocking, really, you know. So you just sort of took it. Yeah. And Slide with the songs on was really great, you know. So, um, and that is what that is a real favourite of mine. That record, actually. Well, the, I think it was almost the last song on side one, "Be My Wife," which has just got the most incredible 
rhythm drum in by um, Dennis on it, Dennis Davis, and it's just incredible. It's like two and a half minutes, but it's such a ferocious kind of rock pop song. You know, it's, it's brilliant. Actually. So when did you? I mean, did you come from a sort of a musical house? I just so going back, I saw Steve Jones, the guitarist out of Sex Pistols, right? Yeah. He's got an Instagram page, and which I, I mean, I don't. I follow about three people on. I followed him on Instagram because he was funny. But the last time I saw it, which was probably this week, he did a uh, he just on an acoustic guitar. He just did a, a really good um, version of uh, Always Crashing the Same Car. Just yeah. on the acoustic guitar, really good. As soon as he started, I thought this is a great song. What's this? Hang on, hang on. Oh yeah, I remember. This is this is a great song, you know. And the fact that you could that, that's that you could do it on an acoustic guitar so successfully, just on your own, I think that just kind of you know it sort of proves that. There, yes, you know. I do. I do. I've got very fond memories of that. Um, playing with him. Uh, yeah, I have to. I'll have I, to I, um, I don't know. Sorry to interrupt, but um, is this a, a, a um, online radio station? Yeah. Well, no, it's kind of future radio. But also, I put these interviews up sort of as well, just because people enjoy listening to them. So, um, okay. So, uh, yes. And do you edit it, or should I be concise? Well, mostly they're they're quite unedited because you know normally it kind of just rolls and it gets to an end, and you just go, okay, let's say goodbye, and that's it. Okay. All right. Yes. There you go. So. Going back then, going back to your yeah. So when did your when when did your musical journey begin? Um, I suppose really, I suppose really, it would have been about nineteen seventy or seventy one when my dad my dad bought um my dad was a, a cobbler, and I think one of the lads that his um who who worked with him. Did something naughty and got put in Borstal. And my dad bought his record player off him to help him out because he needed some money and he just bought it and he just brought this sort of record player which was like on, on four legs. Um and it had a compartment for singles and he had um you know he had a bunch of singles in there, 60s singles really. Yeah. And that's really where it started. It had Let It Be in by the Beatles, which I just played and played and played, you know. And that's really where it started. That's yeah. when I was a record player. And, uh, you know, you couldn't, you know, as you're a kid, you can only buy records on birthdays and at Christmases, really, you know. You haven't got your own money, have you? Well, no. That, you know, the, the Space Oddity one with David Bowie probably cost about 79p and took months to save up all those little coins until you could go to the shop and go, oh, I want, I want space oddity, and then you played the B side. Then it changes in Velvet Goldmine. That's amazing. B sides are so good. It went downhill very quickly after that. But yes, it was a big thing. It was a big purchase, you know. And then, yeah, it, it wasn't something that you just went and got the next day because you just felt like it or just downloaded it. Um, yeah, no, 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 that's right. Yeah, it was a big commitment. So when did so were your parents at all musical? No, no. You know, my dad, my dad. The first thing he bought when he got a job in the early 50s, he bought a radiogram. He liked records, you know. He liked Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald, and uh, he bought um, a radiogram. And the first thing that I bought when I got a job, I bought a hi-fi, you know, like with the stereo, you know. I mean, so it's the same sort of thing. Yes. Um, with the receiver, turntable receiver, cassette, and then the speakers. No, it was just the record deck and speakers. Right. Right. Turntable, you know. And also, it's, you know, I, I was insane sort of the 70s. Um, I carried it home from the shop. So I had to, so I had two boxes. I had this, a big box with two speakers in. And I had a big, a big box, two speakers in, a box with an amp in, and a box with a de stereo deck in, right? So all those boxes, and I'd carried, I'd carried them all home. It, and it, I didn't think about getting a taxi or a car. It wasn't an option, really. I was sort of 16. I just carried them home. I had to just keep stopping and resting on walls. <laughs> it, took, it must have taken me ages to get home, you know. Yes, absolutely. It's a great thing. But it um, still sounds great today. I've still, I got the amp broke. 
Um, so I've got a different amp. Um, but yeah, it still sounds great. Same one. Yeah. And when did the musical instrument appear? When did you sort of think, you know, because I've never gone from being a fan and listening to actually trying to do anything beyond that. I suppose the guitar came along when I was 15. So 1974. Um, so, yeah, just sort of strumming in your room, strumming guitar, playing records, the five records that you've got at that age, you know. Um, and, uh, and in the band that I was, that I was with, there's, there's Rob, who was like my friend, and, and we were the same age, we were always in the same class. And, um, and, you know, he, he, we all just picked these up at the things at the same time. He was, just, you know, his, he liked the same records I liked. He was hugely into David Bowie. And, um, and you know, and we just got guitars and just started sort of strumming along together. Yes. And you were, was this in the Lincolnshire area? In Lincoln, yeah. Yes. So when, when did you start hitting gigs and such like and getting very excited about your first ever gig? Well, I think the thing is that, in the, in the mid 70s, we, you know, there wasn't like David Bowie released a record once a year. And a year is such a, like an age when you're that, you know, when you're the teenager, it's just, you know, a year is such a long time. And, and it was pretty boring, really, you know, and it wasn't until the Sex Pistols came along and all that, that you could see that you could be in a band because you could just make a racket at least and be in a band. But, you know, it wasn't, you didn't have to have keyboard players or drummers who could drum, you know, or, or, or you know, or you to be able to be proficient. It was a very primitive musical form that sounded fantastic at that time. And, and the best of it still does, you know. Yeah, had a absolutely. You know, I mean, and that's really when we were able to, so we were playing together, trying to do Ziggy Stardust and get back, just two guitars. But then once punk came along bingo you know it's like um you can just do it you know get a bass get a drummer let's go you know and immediately just write songs for a laugh and they and just thrash them out and they seem to sound great yes absolutely and when did when did what what happened first the band or the name no the band we, we were we were kind of rehearsing we, I had a drum, so I wanted, I fancied being a drummer, and that was actually the first instrument I got. My dad got like a cheap set of drums, but I just realized that I just couldn't do it. And then somebody knew that I had this kit and told this fellow that was looking for a kit about me, and he came down, and he was like 14 or 15, and I just gave them to him, you know, pretty much. I think he might have bought me a pint of beer or something. I was just glad to get him out of the room. And he and so we knew that all of a sudden then we met a drummer, so he became the drummer, you know. So um, we could, um, and that was it. That was the three of us, and then we were away, you know. So we would just rehearse um, in this drummer's dad's back room and um, and make up these punk songs. Initially, they were just sort of for, for kind of funny and just just having a laugh, really. And uh, and then we started doing shows and, um, and it started going pretty well, you know, just, I mean, we're only a local band. We never sort of went around anywhere, but, you know, we did lots of gigs locally and we got a, a following, you know, people would come and see us. Yes, absolutely. And lyrically, did things, did you start off in quite a um, politically observant band or did, did that develop quite quickly with time? I think it developed really too. I mean, we only did one sort of political song, really, I think. But um, that was the sort of DND sort of time. And it was, I mean, it was, you, it was the Cold War was still on. You know, it's quite a long time ago. It was a different world. It slowly, <laughs> the world slowly changed. And now it's a different world, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Cold War was still on then, you know. I mean, it was, um, and you didn't know anything about Russia. You know, you just, you, you didn't know anything about China. I mean, did everything, there's all these countries that were sort of completely closed off. Yes, absolutely. You used to sort of be able to listen to sort of radio stations at night, which were sort of popular. I think from memory, it's like propaganda that you'd wonder if you should be listening to, but they were so boring, you didn't listen to for very long, but um, it was quite something. So in that kind of the world that you were living in, there was never any sense that you were kind of fascinated with the world of pop rock or even heavy metal. It was definitely 
punk, you know, the Ramones, Dan, Sex Pistols, that would be the driving force of the band. That's what got us going, really. Um, you know, so, so I was in this group with, and, and Rob, who's my friend, who was like the main songwriter, really, and he, he passed away this year. And um, in our dialogue, we, you know, I sort of said, well, you know, you remember me telling you about Sex Pistols? He said, I said, because I saw him on the television on a TV show called So It Goes the night before. And the next day we were literally, I mean, we were fishing. It was so boring. On a, this is on a Sunday. I mean, so Sunday, everything was closed apart from the cinema. And in lockdown, the first thing I thought when I was walking around and everywhere was deserted, I thought, oh, this is just like Sundays used to be, you know, because there's just like no traffic on the road. There's nowhere to go. All the shops were closed. And, um, and we were fishing down the riverbank and it was in the summer. And as he, he and I were fishing, I said, do you see that band on the, so it goes last night? I said, no, I said, oh, Sex Pistols. I said, they're hilarious, you know. And, uh, and then a month later you hear the record and it's the best record you've ever heard, you know. Yeah. So I had this conversation with him and um, he said, I don't remember that, you know. So I Googled when Sex Pistols were on, so it goes. And, um, and it was August 1976. And then I went, I have a diary for that year. And I, I went to it. And there it is in the diary, you know, went fishing with Rob. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't a false memory. It was a real yeah. memory. <laughs> yes, I know. This is very tricky. Because we're talking over 40 years ago now, aren't we? Um, yeah, we are. We're 80s, 40 years ago. I mean, so, so, yeah, so we're talking about 44 years ago. So it was 44 years before that, you know, it's like, hang on, so it's 32, 1932. <laughs> <laughs> talking about 1932 when we were on the riverbank. Yes, fishing. And you've heard that new record. You thought, God, there is, the jazz singing is taking off. We need to, we need to. Talking back. is coming in. Yes, this is right. Charlie Chapman's career is going to be over very soon. Not looking to do it. So then the band, you know, obviously what I've noticed during the show is that we had gatekeepers back in those days, didn't we? We had various things that just were very handy. You know, we had John Peel, we had the music papers. Every small town and big town had venues where you played alternative alternative indie nights or whatever they like to call them, especially in the 80s and 90s. I mean, so you obviously had that kind of opportunity or certainly that that was there at the time three music papers which was quite extraordinary and then you had sort of record memory as well yeah there was i mean that that was a date that was a must read you know every week it came out i mean there was a lot um i mean music i got kids who were sort of 19 and 23 and they're you know they're equally as mad on music but they just go online, you know, and it's so, so different then. I mean, those days you've got the music papers every week, which you would just read and to find out what was going on, you know, and they were very thorough and like, you know, pretty well written and, um, and pretty exciting to read, you know, cause you find out what's going on in London and, you know, you, you just to go to London. Uh, but by that time I probably been to London three times, if that maybe twice. So it's a whole different world, you know, and, um, yeah. And John Peel on the radio, uh, and that's that that was it and then mainly what you do is, is you walk down the streets and you bump into people you this is this is one of the things that i noticed in my diary you'd sort of bump into people and, and talk about music and they tell you have you heard this or i've heard this this is great and then they'd maybe say i'd like to hear that and then or i'll do you a tape <laughs> and then you get a tape of it you know and that was and it was word of mouth it was just it was you know it was, pretty small sort of scene but it was going on everywhere and when the punk thing arrived all of a sudden there was people just like us in every town in Britain that were bored with what was going on and, and wanted something new but it just as soon as it happened you know just people came out of the ground all over the country you know and then before you knew it there's like a thousand bands going on you know it was, I mean, it was just, very dynamic just in the uh <clears throat> In the friends I had in Lincoln, there's probably five bands. Yeah, and um, yes, like you said, those, those kind of incredible cassettes that we used to sort of pass around, and even worse, if you ever tried to make a mixtape, mixtape for somebody that you vaguely fancy, that would take you days to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and, yeah. 
and every song had to mean something or not mean something. Well, it did have to mean something, but it, it couldn't, yeah, I mean, it was a, there was a, too much thought into those compilations. Really. But um, you would see, you would see spotty youths, you know, sort of pale skin, sort of black hair, dyed, you know, a, a Mac on or something, walking down the street with like a guitar or a wasp synthesizer or a microphone. You know, you just see them walking down the street. <laughs> you go into rehearsal, having just bought it, going home. It was, you know, it's a quite um, a usual sight. Don't see yeah. it anymore. No, no, it's 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 not a usual sight. Just get delivery from Amazon, though, don't you? That's that's kind of it, and people just in their rooms. Probably yeah, they probably being far too competent, really, and not just giving it a go. Well, I just, just, you know, as I say, the world's changed so much, hasn't it? But back then it was, um, it was an analog world. Very, very. So when did you, you know, because I'm from Norwich, okay, it's not the greatest place for music. I mean, we've got good venues and we've had lots of good bands come. But apart from, you know, the Upper Farmers Boys, Serious Drinking, the Higsons, it was pretty dismal. So, so musically, obviously, even Lincoln you know, has a better music scene, doesn't it? Or had a better music scene. Well, I don't know. I mean, the music scene really was. Well, I mean, there there was there was a couple of colleges where you could play, and there was a club in in the city where you could get a gig. Um, but they were just teenage bands, really, you know, and they all kind of centre. I mean, that you'd meet pe like-minded people in the record shops. Or record shop, you know, yes. and uh, no, it was, I mean, it was just a whole bunch of us that um, I'd say it wasn't much of a scene, you know, but we all put records out, and it was the time of the independent record, you see, so we all um, put our own records out. So, your first single, which was very exciting, this was on a label called Company Records, wasn't it? Yeah, so who are Company Records? That was me. So I, I had a partner. We, we, um, so what we did, because, you know, at that time, you know, I really was bored. And so when punk came along, I really jumped in head first because I just wanted, I've been desperate for something like this to come along, you know. I sort of envied the Beatles having rock and roll and skiffle and, and then envied the sort of bands in the 60s, you know, having all that great music and all, all those... Um, clubs to play and you could go out and see bands you know but that all seemed to have gone and so when punk came along i really jumped in head first so i, I had a partner and we started buying um independent like bands records people would put their own records out we'd buy the record a box of records from the band and we put a classified ad in the nme listing all these records and we'd sell a mail order and then from that and that got going pretty well you know, I mean, we got a, a lot of, we were getting a little sort of business going. And so we decided to put our own record out. So we put, um, calling it, it's just record company, company records, you know, just switched it around. <clears throat> and um, we put out uh, Thomas Lear single, um, Private Plane, um, Robert Rental. These are electronic uh, records, uh, Paralysis. And we put cigarettes out. And then, you know, the cigarettes, I think we pressed, we must have sold 5,000 for those singles, which I don't know, at the time it wasn't a lot, but then, it, you know, it got to the point where number one, selling, getting number one record in the 90s, you probably only had to sell 10,000, you know. So, yeah, that's amazing. Uh, so, we, you, so did you do that mail order or did you go through the cartel or, or distribution company? Um, no, we did that through, that's a good question, how did we do that? We also done it through the cartel, I mean, the, I remember when the cartel, I think we sold them to, <clears throat> sold a mail order, and then I think people like Rough Trade would buy them, and then certain, and Small Wonder, so record shops, the cartel hadn't actually been created then. Right. We, because of my, I, I, I was getting into this whole scene of the independent records. And I think I probably sent a box here and a box there. And I knew a few people at the shops, probably sold them like that and sold most from mail order. And then we probably shifted a few more when John Peel started playing it. Yes, absolutely. Because, um, you know, because looking at that kind of scene, you have the punk period, and then, you, you know, that quickly gets kind of a bit awful, you know, the bands that start, you know, following, in, following on. 
in the scene you could see it in the 60s. So you must have been more of a sort of almost a more of a post-punk band really, coming coming up the late 70s. Well, we we did our first um I mean what do we do? We, we our first recordings would have been at the beginning of 1978 and we finished in 1979, probably probably about the end of 1979. Right. Yes. I mean I don't know for sure, but that sort of thing. I'm trying to think when I came to London came to London in 1981 so I think that's about the time scale a couple of years between 78 and at the beginning of 1980 perhaps and what was your what's your memory of your first and um, was the first single and studio experience was it um they're back again here they come yeah well we did a we did a, a demo we demoed all our songs basically we went into a studio a four-track studio just outside Lincoln, and we recorded like seven songs, and we put them on a cassette, and we sold those. You know, we just advertised those mail order, and sold those. And I don't know if their their back again was on that, or whether we went in and did a, a recorded that, and then put that out as a single. I think I think it was on that. Um, and um, yeah, and then we put the single out. The single, you know, John Peel really liked it. He put it in his festive fifty or Festive 100, whatever he did at Christmas, he he gave us a session and he gave us a gig. He did a gig for his road show in Northampton. Nice. So, yeah, he liked it. Um, And... um, What were your memories of the John Peel session? Oh, great. I mean, we got... I think the producer we got was um, one of Mott the Hooper, I think. Was it for Dale Griffin? can't remember because he was the drummer wasn't he and he did a lot of sessions especially in the 80s yeah 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 it was him yeah and um yeah he went down to Maida Vale you know and uh Delaware Road Maida Vale Studios um and yeah we did four tracks in you know it's fantastic because just like proper professional equipment you want the piano there's a grand piano there you know <laughs> and we did need we did need a piano as it goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just to make noise on. Um, so, yeah, it was great. And, you know, it's just, um, it's just very exciting getting a van, driving down to London, getting all your gear in the studio, setting it all up. All right, boys, you know, let's go. You know, I mean, it was, uh, it was great, great, it was thrilling. So at that stage, were you, look, were you looking at music as a sort of, you know, and the band as something that might be, you know, be a serious kind of entity i don't think so i think i don't think so i think it was just what you did between school and getting a job right i think i mean for me i was always you know as soon as this opened up i wanted to get down to london i wanted to be in the music business and you know i'd I was so desperate for something to happen. I mean, before the punk thing happened, you got no idea how sort of desperate I was for something to happen, you know, but I never, you never knew if it was going to happen, you know. So as soon as it happened, I really just went for it. And, uh, and I got, um, I, was, I was able to get down to London and get in the music game, you know, and that was really great for me. That's what I was, sort of, uh, that's what I wanted to do. I had no real dis- thought of, um, being a, in a band, you know, being a, I don't think so. Because I started managing, I was putting records out. I started managing a group called Swinging Laurels. You know, I was just, I was just, um, the band was just one thing really. Yes. Was, you know. And so with, with the, the three of you, did you kind of have that moment where you kind of sat down to say, quote Jim Morrison, the end? Was it that moment, did you have a moment? Or, you know, because a lot of people say, you know, they were either on a tour or they were at a gig or they were in the studio and they kind of realised I think I just sort of, I think I was just so busy and I just said, I'm moving to London now. You know. Well, they was, was it the Was it the same with all of you, the, all three of you? Were, were you all sort of in the same kind of, yeah, that's fine. We well, Adam, the drummer, he went to, um, he went off to, to college around that same time, you know, he went off to... Um, to Bristol to university or something, you know. So, because he was fifteen in, in was he fifteen in? Yeah, so he'd be seventeen, eighteen or something, and just left school and went to Bristol. So that's the sort of thing you see. It wasn't really so. That is, we weren't really thinking. 
let's get a record deal. I don't think we never would have thought that or tried to do anything. We just did it. Yes, that's we amazing. And, so, um, were you, so just fast forward before we go back again. So when, when Optic, so how did it go? Did Optic Nerve, all the way from Preston, get in touch and say, look, we love your stuff? Did you go, oh, really? Yeah. Well, no, we've had, it went quiet for a long time. And then um, in the 90s, somebody got in touch and wanted to put out, you know, the cigarettes recordings, which we did. Um, and I was just kind of, at the time, I mean, I wasn't particularly interested. I just gave them the, the recordings and um, took 500 quid or something and split it between us. And that was that. I didn't really think about it. But then after time, other people, other companies got in touch to put their back again on compilations it's been on a few compilations that particular track um and then uh, and then when optic nerve got in touch i was sort of kind of flattered but what the first thing i said to him i said yeah sure but all i want is really is a nice sleeve you know because the the original recordings when they were put out it wasn't a very good sleeve and the artwork wasn't very good and it was just a bit shabby really yes I just like it to be a nice sleeve, and then I don't know if it is a nice sleeve. I mean, I like it because I did it, and I did it, and I I got all the photographs that I could find from that time of us, uh, and none of them was really strong enough to be a covering on its own. So I used all the photographs that were at all any good, and I put them on the uh, all over the cover, and then um, so it's like a bit like a an album for us so like for us three when when you've got it you've got the music and you've got the pictures you've got the whole package there in your hand you know yes absolutely that's the whole story you know so and and then inside when you open it up i did a it's like a painting and a photo collage of the cassette of the demo cassette the seven track demo cassette that we um did and that's it really that's and i thought well there you go that's the whole story for us as a memento of that time. Yeah, which is very nice. Which is really nice indeed. When the Ian at the Optic Nerve, he made such a great job of the um, of the printing and the presentation and the quality. And then it came when when I got one in the post, I opened it up, and like there was all sorts of things fell out, badges and stickers and posters. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> He did a T-shirt. I mean, I couldn't believe it, you know. So um, he did a great job. Yeah, I was very pleased with that. Yeah. And then he found them all pretty quick. And then the reviews came out, and he kept sending me these, these reviews. They were all really good reviews. I, can't, I just thought he was making it up, really. I couldn't believe it, you know. So it all went very well, and good for him, you know. I think he's, he's, he's um, you know, he, he sold them all and uh, did a great job. Yes, and I noticed, you know, you're on Spotify now, and you get a lot of monthly listens and you know it must be kind of strange if you're talking about something you did 42 years ago that well, I, mean, I i've got apple music i've not got spotify but you so if you go on spotify can you see how how often it's been played yeah wow you can see it's there you know and, and obviously you know if you and the good i mean you know obviously a lot of people don't get any well the money isn't great but you can kind of you get discovered because it kind of says, well, if you like this band, you might like this. And it's just a click away, isn't it? Quite, um, yeah. And that's well, very good. That's my daughter's got such an incredible musical knowledge, you know, going back to, through jazz blues, the sixties, the nineties, you know, sort of reggae, dance music, sort of soul. I mean, and it's all from that. Every just clicking. If you like this, you like that. Yes, so there you go. So, if, so with, all the, all, with all those quite obscure bands, you know, obviously, you know, there's going to keep you people all over the world, like me, probably young kids as well as us oldies. And the thing, what I've noticed is that a lot of stuff during that time, the 70s and especially the 80s, I'll be, I, to be honest, I missed it because you couldn't access, you couldn't afford it, and you couldn't always get it if you wanted to. You might hear it on John Peel, scribble down the name of the band and think, brilliant. I've got a bit of paper with the name, but where do I go and get it? You know, that's the end. Whereas actually now you can go back and go, oh, these are the bands I missed the first time on yeah. 30, 40 years ago, but now I can listen to them and, you know, and obviously buy the, the vinyl, the heavy vinyl, you know, beautiful sleeve of the cigarettes. Or, or even um, Shazam. <laughs> when, you hear, when you hear sort of music on the 
television. You get, get Shazam out. Find out what it is, you know. I've never, I've never, I've never used Shazam. Shazam. Mm -hmm. right, it's a really good, useful sort of tool for discovering new music, you know. So, you know so I, mean? I can imagine it's very handy. So what happened to you then with your entrepreneurial and creative moves as, as the band finished in the early 80s and then, you know, us indie kids were doing our thing. What did you do for the best of the um, life? So in the 80s, I was managing kind of groups and getting record deals. And I was sort of, um, uh, and then I went to, I lived in America for, towards the end of the 80s, managing a couple of record producers and a band, the Screaming Blue Messiahs. Do you oh my hear? God, the, the, yes, I've done interviews with two of the members, the drummer and the bass player. Oh yeah, and, um, Kenny and uh, Chris. Well, not the singer. Oh yeah, Kenny and Chris. Kenny's a drummer and Chris is the uh, bass player. Right, but not who's the who's the lead singer? Bill Carter. Bill Carter, the famous Bill Carter. That and um, I did that, and then they split up, and I was in America, and then I just came home really, and um, um, and I, I I'm a tour manager now, so I tour manage um, Jules Holland and the Rhythm and Blues Orchestra, and I've been doing that since 1993. Right, why me arriving? Yes, I've done an interview with the guitarist who um, I think he lives in the Norfolk area. Yeah, Mark, Mark Flanagan, yeah. Yeah, that's lives in Yes, I mean, he always told me an amazing story when he sort of hung out with George Harrison by a swimming pool, thinking this is a bit unreal. He said what, sorry? Oh, he, I think he was on the road with Jules Holland, you know, they were just travelling and said, oh, I've just got to go and see George Harrison and, you know, suddenly he was there by George Harrison's, you know, Mark, you know, rather huge house and swimming pool, sort of hanging out there while Jules and George did some chatting and him just sitting there thinking, God, this is a bit strange. I'm near one of the Beatles. I, I, I feel a bit unusual. Well, that, I had the similar um, experience because my very first gig, my very first day on the job, I had to go pick Jules up from George Harrison's house because they were doing the anthology TV show and he was interviewing. Right. Uh, and then he was doing the interviews and then he had a show in Portsmouth. So I had to drive from London to George's to get um, Jules and then go on and do uh, the gig. And that was the first gig. That was my first day at work, you know. So I thought, blimey. <laughs> <laughs> yes, interesting. And how did you cope with people like, you know, the Screen and Blue Messiahs? You had that big moment when David Bowie suddenly said, Yes, one of my favourite bands has been the screen through the side. Everyone was like, right, let's go and find that album. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, I, knew, I mean, their records were great, and they were a great live band, but they, Bill in particular, you know, was really keen on America and Americana, and they got going in America through um, college radio. And so there was a lot of time spent in America sort of um, touring around there, really. And it's one of those things, it's a bit like with Slade, you go away for too long and when you come back, everything's moved on, you know. Yes. And mm -hmm. we came back to do a tour. The Stone Roses were the big thing. And, and we, we were in the Kentish town heading north, picking Bill up and the little, and the bus, the sort of bus was um, waiting there for Bill. And I nipped out, because I was, we'd just kind of come from America, I nipped out to the record shop to buy... Um, a tape of the Stone Roses because I'd not heard them, but there was a lot of fuss about them, you know. And I remember Chris, who you've spoken to, the bass player, uh, I, we put it on in the bus and he says, it just sounds like Herman's Hermits to me. <laughs> and I thought he had a good point. <laughs> I could see what he meant, you know. Yeah. Although I did like him, I mean, I got to like him, but that's, I, I had to get over that. So I thought it was a very funny comment. <laughs> But yes, the, the musical scene, because I, I suppose with me, I sort of became obsessed with the, the indie world, but realised that it did have a, a quite, of the 80s, that five-year period, which was roughly the years of the Smiths, between 83 to 87, and then they split up, and then ecstasy became a thing, and then there was the Manchester scene, with that dance scene, and then there was the, the Seattle drum scene, and then that finishes, and then there was Britpop, and then that finishes, so the things move on very quickly. Yeah, definitely, yeah. And that is quite tricky. So what, what, what advice would you give? Because obviously going from being in a band to 
record, you know, managing bands and producers and then being a tour manager. I mean, what, what sort of uh, experience, what, what would you, what wisdom would you give anybody starting out in that murky and interesting world that is rock and roll? Just, I think you just got to do what you do to, you know, how you want it. Make it sound how you want it, you know, and just stick with it and keep sticking with it and keep going, you know, and um, round the corner is a, a break. you got to get out there and do stuff. You can't sit at home really and do it because I'm, well, in my day, I mean, now I don't know, you know, but in those days, if you, you had to get, like, get, on, get out there and try and get gigs, you had to go to the clubs and try and get gigs or the pubs. You had to try and get gigs. You had to go out and meet record people and try and get records. You had to get your sh records in shops. You know, you had to get out on your feet and run around doing stuff, you know, and bump. But, and, you know, the music industry, you know, is, at that time, was, I'm sure it's the same now. It's pretty small, you know. If you, if you find somebody who's, who's um, if you bump in, you know, if you somebody in a record shop, you might see them a couple of years later and they'll be sort of in a record company. You know what I mean? It's like you'd see that the same people just circulate around. And if you're really desperate and stick with it, you know, you'll, you'll be able to get, you'll be able to get ahead because you'll be, you'll end up knowing people in the business because when you start, nobody knows anybody, but as soon as you go around meeting people, all of a sudden you go, oh, I know that guy, hang on, he's there and you know, and, uh, and you can, uh, you can get going. Which is quite interesting. And obviously, you know, like having, having chatted with two of the three members of Screaming Blue Messiahs, I mean, it's quite interesting because I remember Kenny saying that when he heard one of the live albums that got released, he said he's got no memory of the gig because he was kind of pretty hammered. I mean, how did you cope with that world that was kind of, you know, rock and roll? Well, um, I think... I think that record was, that was in Scandinavia, wasn't it, that gig? I think so, yeah. I remember it. I mean, they, I mean, that was just before they split up. And, you know, it was, we'd been on the road and it was cold. It was coming up to Christmas. It was November, December. And we're in Northern Europe. It was really cold and miserable. And they, and they weren't getting on the singer, you know, they'd just had enough, you know. And, um, it's a bad time. That's probably why he doesn't remember it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's got nothing to do with, it's got nothing to do with um, overindulgence at all. You know, it was at that time when that record was made or recorded, he was just very grim, very gloomy, you know. Yes. He was on the, he was on the North Sea Ferry coming back from that tour, which we'd been on the road for two months maybe. And we were on a North Sea Ferry and it looked like the sort of ship that was, that may have sort of um, been at Dunkirk in the Second World War. I mean, it was literally rusting. And we were down there, and, the, and it was really rough seas, and waves were banging the hull, and it was just echo. I mean, you, you felt like you're never going to make it, you know. And we're in the bar, <laughs> sort of hanging on for dear life, and that's when they split up. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I got back, we got back, and, um, and I drove up to, because I was living, I'd given up my apartment in America, but, um, so I drove up to Lincoln and spent Christmas up there, you know, um, and that's when they split up, yeah. Yeah, well, it's interesting, I mean, because there was one of those kind of documentaries I watched, which was, um, I can't remember what the hand it was. Oh, it was the police. That was when they got back together again, and everyone was having a great time, apart from two of the three members, you know, Stephen and Stuart, and they decided, you know, it's like, there was millions at stake at this, so it was like, you know, for everyone's sake, can we just make it? So they had band therapy and um, they kind of talked about what, what's going on for those two members. I mean, did you, did you ever sort of have those moments yourself with bands? Like, um, let's just, we really need to have a proper talk. Um, no, not really. I think, you know, they're grown men, you know, they're difficult to, sort of <laughs> to get into that situation. I think most grown men, I mean, aren't quite as enlightened as that, you know. <laughs> and and like you usually you've got in a band you know you've got like the main drive or the writer or the singer or the, there's always like a focus in a band you know and um and when they decide they've had enough that's usually it you know yes um and also they but bands only have a, a finite life um apart from you two who i don't know that, what their story is it's extraordinary but generally you know you 
bands uh, usually have a finite life because creatively they um they get bored of each other or they dry up you know well i've, I've having done this show for quite a few years and interviewed all these bands i certainly hadn't appreciated the you know the four to five year narrative of what happened in the back you know for the 80s indie bands was that they'd get together you know especially in the early 80s where there was a lot of unemployment so people were on job seekers allowance or unemployment they would um yeah they would form a band get a single john peel play it people didn't do a john peel session they do the first album things put into a second album things start getting a bit messy if any a british band toward america they'd come back and they'd all say then we broke up because it just seemed to finish them off and at that stage there was two major major problems there was no money you know and they really hated each other and they were just like and also the music industry had changed again they were thinking well we, we were part of this scene, but that scene is now feeling quite redundant because there's a new scene and there's a new bunch of 16 to 18 year olds who want their new, you know, stars. They don't really want these old people in their early 20s or mid 20s anymore who've got their third album coming out. So, um, yeah, you're right. There's a finite moment. Yeah, there is. Yeah, you know, um, the life of a band. Five years is pretty good. Yes, and unless you're new too. And then it seems to just go on. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, I mean, have they, has any band stayed together as long as that and never changed any of its personnel? I mean, they've been together for so long now. Well, I, I mean, suppose... Nearly 40 years, right? I mean, I bet their first record is about 1981. Yeah, probably it's either Boy or War, isn't it? But I, I suppose there was the, there is the Rolling Stones and bands like The Searchers and those kind of six, some of those... They've gone through members, you know. But, but you two are... That's it, you know. I mean, the Stones lost Brian Jones, but Bill Wyman went, you know, Ronnie Wood joined, you know. I mean, um, yeah, they had Mick Taylor for a few years, seven years, yeah. So, there you go. I mean, yes, you too. I was thinking Simple Minds were a little bit similar, but they probably they're not quite as persevering as members, and they split up for a while, didn't they? Yeah, so and REM eventually split, so um, but yeah. You two are the one, really. Yeah. Do you think it's because they just looked at the big picture and thought, look, it's just too good a gig to mess this up? I think they get, they must get on really well. They must sort of love each other and really appreciate each other. And and, um, and they all must fulfil a role, you know, like, um, I mean, I saw them play up close um, and they were fantastic. You know, they were absolutely fantastic. You know, the rhythm section, the bass and drums was fantastic. Then, obviously, Bono's such an amazing front man and he you know, great voice and range. And then, um, and the edge just sort of doing his making his soundscapes. You know, I mean, it was just a fan, and it's really it's a trio, it's like the Who or the Jam bass, guitar, drums, and the vocal, right? Yeah, but absolutely fantastic, you know. Yes, and just, I mean, just last question because I sort of realized that. In a weird way, yes, Rob passed away this year, didn't he? Which must have been a horrible moment. But the album had also come out. So, did he? Um, did you have a moment with the three of you who were able to sort of share that kind of collection together? Yeah, well, um, I mean, the record thing. I mean, was neither here nor there when it came to Rob's illness. But we did. You know, I met Adam, who's the drummer, and he and I went up to the hospital in January and saw him. And that was great. You know, that was great. And what a great, I mean, it was a great thing to do for, for, all, for all of us, but particularly, <clears throat> I think, for Adam and myself, you know. And, um, and I had some correspondence with Rob. You know, because we'd known each other since we were four. We were in every class together at school right through, you know. And we were, we were sort of hung out together from four to sort of 21, you know, so there's quite a lot of history there. Yes. That must you know, have been quite a lot of history there, you know. History from when we were six and history from when we were 16, you know. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was, um, it was awful sort of period and, you know, really uh, upsetting. Yes, no, it's always a bit. Yes, well, a bit of a diner. That was also my um, 
first of March is my birthday. Sorry? I said the first of March, that's my birthday. That's oh, is it? I think it was the day he passed away, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, it yeah. Um, yes, I was in Hamburg on that day when I got the call, but uh, you know, it's um, when we, we went to, we went and it was his birthday on January the 6th is when we went. And we went because, you know, we'd been told he hadn't got very long, but, you know, he had nearly another couple of months, but he was all horrible, you know, it was really awful. Um, yeah, really awful for his family and, you know, for him. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Did, did, was it slightly kind of enjoyable being able to show each other kind of the collection and to see it so slightly reminisce about it? you know, when you made the album, or the singles? No, we didn't talk about the uh, the music, you know, just, just, um, just talked about sort of, uh, I don't even know if we talked about the band at all, really, to be honest, I think it was just nice to be together. Um, and um, obviously we, there was us, but we had friends around us as well. So there's, there was, we were just three people in a group of friends. We just happened to be, you know, to, to have a little band between us, but, um, it was just nice to be together. Yes. Well, yes. Well, look, Stephen, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this. This has been amazing. And um, yes, I hope it goes um, well with the album sales, well, especially for Optic Man. And uh, yes, you'll be able to look at your Spotify numbers and go, yes. I'll, I shall, uh, I'll look into that. You can send me a link so I can hear this. Or... Yes, absolutely. I may send it to sort of um, Adam and to um, Rob's family. Yeah, absolutely. I, don't, I can't remember what we've covered, but anyway, it's nice talking to you. Yeah, look, have a great evening and take care and best of luck for next year. All right, thanks very much. You too. See you. Bye-bye. And that's how you say goodbye. And that is the end of the interview. Um, sorry, but my vocal seems to be a bit... Um, Yes, a little bit under power. Anyway, look, that's it. That's the end. Uh, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And also all these have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Thanks a lot. Have a good evening.